Uh, well, we will be in the book of Judges this morning, uh, book of Judges, chapter one. And if you are willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's holy, inspired and errant word? Judges, chapter one, and we will read verses one through nine and then chapter two, verses one and two. Now, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go? Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah, send Judah. Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. And then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us. To fight against the Canaanites, and we in turn will go with you into yours. And so the Simeonites went with him. And when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down ten, struck down ten thousand men at Bezek. And it was there that they found Adoni Bezek, and they fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adoni Bezek fled. But they chased him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and big toes. And then Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings, seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, have picked up scraps under my table. And now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Verse 8. And the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem, and they took it. And they put the city to the sword, and they set it on fire. And after that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, in the Jev and the western foothills. Chapter 2, verses 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars, and yet you have disobeyed me. Why? Why have you done this? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of the Lord. No, the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that will be preached to you. You may be seated. When I was uh, when I was studying at RTS, um, I really enjoyed uh, studying some of the great thinkers of the past. Uh, thought they gave great insight in understanding the questions of the culture. And one fellow who is renowned, which you'll know, is uh, C.S. Lewis, right? The great decorated scholar, uh, the incredible Englishman. And uh, as you know, C.S. Lewis was raised in the church, and after a period of time, he went AWOL, and, uh, and then through his good friend J.R. Tolkien, he eventually came back to faith. And among his many decorated scholarly accomplishments in his uh, many writings, he was also, if you didn't know, a very, very, very passionate and effective apologist of the faith, an evangelist of the faith. And during his time... Uh, he led many, many of the most brilliant minds in Oxford and Cambridge and around the world to Christ. Uh, and one day somebody asked him, they said, listen, all right, how do you do it? <laughs> you know, uh, what's your spiel, right? What's your shtick? 
You know, see, how are you leading some of the greatest atheists, some of the most brilliant minds in history to faith in the risen Christ? Great question, right? And uh, C.S. looked at him and he said, well, he said, uh, it's not really that difficult. He said, uh, I asked him one question. And that question is this. What is your most core belief? What is your chief belief? What is your most core belief? What is the number one thing that you are building your entire life on? Like if you could, if you could boil it down to one belief, what is the one core belief that you believe that you believe to be ultimately true that is holding everything together? If you're an atheist, if you're not Christian, you've rejected the God of the Bible, you've rejected Scripture. So what is it? What is that one core belief? That you are building your entire life and thinking system and morals and values off of. He said, it's funny, we'd sit there as we start getting into it. Most of these most brilliant minds, they, they knew what they rejected, but they had no idea what they had embraced. And he would push them and push them and push them, and they'd finally say, I don't know. Or many of them would start to pick it apart and realize all of a sudden that what they were basing their entire life off of was completely inconsistent once you started to break it apart. They began to realize if something is going to be ultimately true, then it has to be what? Well, it has to be consistent. It has to be coherent. I say that. This, I, I, here's my point in bringing that up. You see, I think life. I think I think life boils down to the human experiences versus the divine explanations, right? That every day you're experiencing human reality, you're experiencing hurt, you're experiencing pain, you're experiencing love, you're experiencing excitement, you're experiencing letdown, like being a Georgia Bulldog fan last year, right? Uh, you're experiencing joy, you're experiencing grief, uh, all sorts of different things. And at the same time, you're experiencing the divine explanations of how to interpret these things. You look at life and you're faithful to your job, you're doing everything right, and then all of a sudden you get fired or you get rejected for uh, a promotion. And you go, I don't get it. I was following the Bible. I was paying attention to the scriptures. Why are things not working right? Why are things not going well? And it becomes this conflict between the divine explanations and what experience is trying to tell me is true. If you're young, sometimes you're asking a lot of questions. Why are there mean girls, right? Listen, those of you who are teenagers, it's hard. If you're in middle school and high school, listen, I wouldn't want to be you. Like, you're my hero. It's tough, right? You get bullied. Guys pick on you. They make fun of you. They, they turn on you. They betray you. You know, girls, listen, they can be, you know, they, they, those, those little middle school girls, they're, they're, uh, they can be tough sometimes. And honestly, those are real questions you're wrestling with. Sometimes, you know, daddy ball, you're working hard trying to get a spot on the team. And just because somebody else's daddy's got more money or has influence, He's getting a position that you know you earned and you rightfully should have had. Girls, you work so hard to build these friendships, right? And all of a sudden these girls betray you and they turn on you. You get a little bit older. You go to college, even in Justin Professor. You get a little bit older and you lose a loved one. You get passed over for jobs where your kids are the source of your entire life. You pour everything into them and then they grow up and they hate you and they hate the faith and they hate the church. Tough questions, right? You ever been there? <laughs> I have. Every day. It doesn't matter if you're a little kid, if you're in middle school, you're high school, you're college, you're an adult, or you're a senior adult. These are questions every single one of us are wrestling with every single day, and they're hard questions. You see, the human experience many times makes us question if the explanations that God gives us are really true and if they can be trusted. Can I really count on them? Because if they're true, why do they not seem to play out in my daily life? 
Why do they not seem to hold or make me prosper, be successful? For example, a few, a few years ago, I saw a news story. And quite frankly, it was pretty tough to read. A little two-year-old girl was walking with her mom. They were walking their little dog. And little Cujo gets loose. The dog takes off. You know, it goes off running. Sorry, that was a bad dog impression. And uh, she goes flying off after the dog. The little girl takes off. And all of a sudden, the little girl's running after the dog. And while she's running, she steps on a septic tank plastic cover just the wrong way. They had not been properly fitted. It flips, and the little girl falls in. The mom frantically paralyzes. She can't move. She just freaks and goes into paralysis and then starts screaming, but she can't move. Screaming for help as her little toddler sinks into 50 inches of raw sewage. Now listen, how can that be? With a good God, how can two-year-olds drink in a raw sewage? How can a mom be helpless to do anything about it? Kids aren't supposed to die young. Moms aren't supposed to be paralyzed and not being able to help. And my, my, my point is this. Listen, have you ever looked at this world and say, this place is nuts? It's crazy. Listen, everything is broken. You only have to look up, look around, turn on the news, turn on the media, turn on your Twitter account, check your Snapchat, and you're going to realize everything is incredibly broken. And the reality is that life leaves you asking, stories like this in the book of Judges leaves us asking, is God caring or is God cruel? Who is he? So many times we experience that God seems like a sick tyrant, right? He's mean. He's he's, he's not coming through. He's not involved. He's ignoring me. Like I pray, but it just bounces off the ceiling and stays in the room. You ever felt like that? But then there's other times I'm experiencing, wow, God seems like a loving, caring father. He came through for me. He was patient to me. He, he, he was merciful to me. And then you look at the Bible. And you look at the Bible and you have passages like we're going to talk about today where it looks like God is this cruel, wicked, thief, judge. Just out to murder and destroy people. And then you look at other passages of the Bible and here is this incredibly loving and gracious and merciful father. And if you're paying attention, you ask and you go, what is this? What do I trust? What's the real deal? What's the truth? Who and who and what am I going to put stock in as I build my life? What am I going to build it on? Listen, people are asking these questions faster than sound can travel. And if you think this isn't a question in our own denomination, last year, a little girl who was raised in the PCA in Central Georgia Prez in Tifton, Georgia, was staring, looking at me, asking the same question. Your God is a cruel, sick tyrant. How are you going to answer my question? And she's completely rejected the faith and walked away from the church and uh, has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. And so this stuff matters. Listen, maybe where you're sitting here this morning and you're not asking this question, is God caring or cruel? But I promise you somebody on your street is. Uh, maybe you're not asking the question, but I promise you your college student, your child is. Maybe they feel safe. Maybe they don't feel safe to tell you. But I promise you it's sitting there. And so it's a question that we have to answer, we have to pay attention to, especially on the college campus. This is probably the number one question that comes up of why students want nothing to do with the God of the Bible. Is they look at the Bible, they look at life, and they say, your God is a sick, tyrant judge. Why would I want anything to do with this narcissistic being? I deal with that question every week. And so this morning, we're going to look at this question from a passage that seems to, that seems to teach that. Is God caring or cruel from the beginning of the book of Judges? All right, so here we go. 
The first thing we see in verses 1 through 9, the first thing we see in the text is it's a horror story. In verses 1 through 3, Moses is long dead and Joshua has now died. Now, Joshua is the great religious leader, great military leader, great sociopolitical leader. Joshua was the one that took them into the next phase of their existence. And all of a sudden, he has died. They've got no land. They've got no job. They've got no Twitter. They've got no Snapchat. There's no Chick-fil-A. They've got nothing. And here they are sitting wondering, going, what are we going to do? And the people of God start freaking out and they call out to the Lord and say, what are we going to do? We're here. Joshua's dead. What do we go? And God looks at them and says, Judah, send Judah. Judah is going to be the one to wrong all the things in the land. Judah is going to be the one to wipe out evil in civilization. Judah is going to be the one to take care of all the injustices in the land. Send Judah. And then in verses four through nine, the people of God go nuts. The people of God go nuts and they begin mutilizing. Sorry, that was good. They begin mutilating, vandalizing, torturing, murdering. It's the annihilation of a people group with God's permission. That is exactly what this text is saying and exactly what happened. The goal of the book of Judges is an intruder alert. It's written in a way grammatically to jolt you into attention, to shake you into a right view of yourself. Why? Because most of us really don't think we're sinners, right? Most of us really don't think we have a sin problem. We see it more as kind of a set of annoying disturbances than a catastrophic issue. And it's not really, really a big deal, right? I mean, kind of the way our operating system is, like, I mean, I know I'm bad, but, you know, look at Betty Sue over there, right? You know, or I know I got problems, but look at, you know, John Croft over there, right? It's the South. Everybody has double names. And uh, and uh, we, we always prepare ourselves and say, that person over there, that group over there, they are worse than me. My sin is not really a problem. But the book of Judges strikes the tornado siren and says, no. It's my sin, Chad Turner. It's your sin, Lake Oconee. It is our sin that is a massive, catastrophic, critical condition. And if you don't realize the nastiness of sin, of your sin, not sin in general, but yours, then you are in real danger. In 1983, Mike Wallace did a 60-minute interview with Yul Dinur. And Dinur was a Holocaust survivor and became a famous writer. Many of you probably remember his story. And during the interview, Dinur recounted being at the trial of Adolf Eichmann. And Adolf Eichmann, to put it kindly, was an incarnate, evil, pure monster. Uh, he was one of the primary organizers in the, in the Nazi army of the Holocaust camps and how they were going to do uh, torture and everything else. I mean, he was uh, he was pure evil, to put it simple. Well, there's a video clip of Denur walking into the courtroom, and he sees Adolf Eichmann for the first time since being released from the concentration camps. And all of a sudden, as he walks in, he just freezes. Like it's it's really quite powerful. Like he just paralyzes, and he begins to just sob uncontrollably, and then he literally faints and falls like out of nowhere, right? Well, Wallace, Mike Wallace, for 60 minutes, asked Denur, he said, what happened? I mean, I'm just curious. You know, why did you collapse? Uh, were you afraid? Was it hatred? Was it rage? Was it anger? Uh, Denur said, no, 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 no. No, it was none of those things. It was, uh, it was none of these, rather. Denur goes on to explain to Wallace, and he said this. He said, all at once I realized 
The Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many of my friends and family and countrymen to their death. That this Eichmann was an ordinary man like you and me. And I was afraid and I was terrified for myself, said Denner. And Wallace said, terrified for yourself? You're free. Why would you be terrified? You were safe. Mike Wallace was completely confused. And he said, because I saw for the first time that I was capable of becoming Adolf Eichmann myself. I all of a sudden realized I'm exactly like him. That if the court would give me the freedom, I would become the same monster to him as he was to me. And he summarized his feelings by saying, the truth is, Eichmann is in all of us. Did you hear that? He said that the reality of the human heart, the human condition, is that all of us are capable of tremendous evil if given the freedom. That Denur now craved to be the same mutilating monster that Eichmann was. You see, Judges chapter 1 is giving a mirror into our own soul. It's saying that we are that same mutilating monster, that we have the same condition, the same problem, that same vengeful, evil heart that sits in chapter 1 when people people of God were let loose. That is what sits in us. Now, you may be saying, Chad, slow down. I will. Now, you may also be saying, Chad, how, how can you possibly compare me to this bunch of mutilating, murderous savages? You don't know me, and you're right, I don't know you. I'd love to get to know you, but I don't know you. How could you possibly compare me when you don't know me? Well, you may say or you may think, I've never done those deeds. I've never murdered anybody. I've never hurt anybody. You know, I'm just an accountant, right? I'm just a bean counter. I mean, I may have even heard a fly. How could you compare me to them? Uh, how dare you put me on the same level as Judges chapter 1? Well, it comes from a true understanding of the perfection of God's holiness and law. You see, for a deed to be perfect... For a deed to be considered a good work, for a deed to be perfect, or for a deed to be considered a good work, to achieve God's standards of righteousness, to achieve God's stamp of approval of as a good deed, it must be perfect in thought, in words, and in deeds 24 7. Let me say it again. For your actions to be considered good, for your actions to be considered perfect, to be, get God's stamp of approval, that means everything you do has got to be perfect in obedience to God's character and God's law in your thought life, in your words, and in your deeds 24-7 and all of it motivated by the glory of God. Now I ask you, if you're honest, have you ever done that? Have you ever been able to live for 30 seconds like that? A minute, an hour, even for a day? There's no way. There's no way any of us could carry that weight. I fail miserably when it comes into relation to God's standard. Hence our need for Jesus as our perfect lawkeeper. But hear me here. The city of God is very different than the city of man. You see, in the book of Matthew, Jesus goes around and begins to discuss the issue of adultery. He says, hey, listen, I know you heard you understand that if you go and have a physical act of marital treason, right? That that's adultery. And here's the punishment. You're breaking God's law and so forth. But listen, here's the deal. Here's the true understanding of the city of God. Here's the true understanding of the spirit of law. Here is how we understand adultery in God's eyes and heart. That if you even look at a woman lustfully, if you even fantasize about a man inappropriately, guess what? That you are now in God's economy, in God's court of law, just as guilty of adultery as the person who committed the physical act. Meaning, 
that by God's standards in his court of law, that we are just as guilty and condemned as the adulterer who committed the act. Meaning that our thought life in God's economy is just as true as our actions and our deeds, which therefore puts us on the same level as Judges chapter 1. You ever thought evil in your heart? You ever slandered with your words? Killed somebody's reputation or character? And we are just as guilty as Judges chapter 1. And so the first takeaway is this. Do we have a right view of ourselves? Listen, hear me like a coney. Do we see ourselves in Judge chapter 1? Do you see the mirror into your own heart, into your own soul, to realize you're not as righteous as you think you are, you're not as good as you think you are, that we are a complete failure and joke in comparison to God's standards? Do you see the mirror of our horror and nastiness of our sin? It is graphic and it is explosive. But the question really is this. Since this is a historical account, listen, this is not a fairy tale. This is not a Greek myth. This is not a fable. This is a real historical account that actually happened. This is historically true. And if this account was historically true, then what does this say about who God really is? You see, here's what's crazy. God commands his people to go and kill and wipe out the Canaanites. And it's not even seen as evil or wicked. It's actually seen as good. Now, stop for a minute. How could God? How could the God that you and I love and serve, how could God, the good, holy, and loving God, command the extinction and the annihilation of a people group? And on top of that, he just told them to go steal their land. How could God do that? The skeptic says, what kind of narcissistic God is this? The atheist says, how can you worship a murderer? How can you be loyal to somebody who said, go steal somebody else's home? These are massive questions, aren't they? Now, I want you to take a walk with me for a minute. I want you to hang with me for a minute. What if? What if there's more to the story than meets the eye? What if when you come into passages like this in the Old Testament that appear to present one thing. What if there's more to the story, more to the eye, than what you first availably see? Okay? What if, I want you to track with me for a minute, what would you do? What would you do if you were assaulted? What would you do if your home was pillaged and stolen and everything was taken from you? What would you do if an unspeakable act of racism had been committed against you? What would you do? What would you want? What would you crave? What would you feel? I want you to think about that for a moment. And I think deep inside you... Whoops. Most... Nope, wrong person. We're going to find it eventually. And if this happened to you, would you call these criminals, would you call these perpetrators innocent, or would you call them victims? Because over and over again, people assume that these Old Testament people groups who experienced the wrath of God were just innocent people, Right? That you see God, that here, just like leave it to Cleaver, Mrs. Beaver, right there in their, you know, black and white TV show, and everything's happy. They're making lemon bread, and they, you know, they're boiling eggs, and they're planting gardens, and the guys are outside in the streets, you know, blowing up things in the, you know, in the sewer line. And here's this, these happy, sweet, innocent community cultures, and then all of a sudden, God is having a bad day and goes, I don't like those people. Bibbidi bobbidi boo, right? And just unleashes his wrath on these innocent, sweet people that did nothing wrong. And people go, how could he? How could your God? Just all of a sudden annihilate and destroy these sweet little innocent beaver to cleaver. How could he, right? These people are obviously innocent. Well, the reality is, no, they're not. Not one of them. If you look back in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you're going to find what these people were up to. And the reality is, they were sacrificing children to gods. 
They were abusing the elderly. They were oppressing and hurting the poor. They were sexual abusers and they were practicing all types of sexual immorality that we never even want to speak of in our midst. The reality was every single one of these groups, including this one right here, they were a brutal and evil and wicked civilization. To say that the Canaanites were innocent people, well, it would mean that we walk around and we say, you know what? Every murderer, every sexual assaulter, and every racist in our culture, they're just innocent. They're just victims of bad upbringing. It wasn't their fault. Look how they were raised. And I ask you, would anybody in their right mind say that? The reality is, these people make ISIS look like tame puppies. And there's not a soul alive who isn't burning for God to bring his justice on ISIS. You see, the truth is, is that God commands the Israelites to be the agents of his judgment on the Canaanites. Let me say it again. The truth is, is that God commands the Israelites to be the agents of his judgment on the Canaanites. And so the second thing we see is, is it's a justice story. It's what theologian Meredith Klein calls the intrusion ethic. All right? The intrusion ethic. And he says that what happens here is that God, who alone has the knowledge from the beginning to the end, the God alone who has all the authority and the right to bring future judgment into the present now, that what is coming to all people for their wickedness gets injected into the present now. And so in Judges chapter 1, God looks at the Canaanites and says, your time is up. Your number is being called. And it's time to give an account for what you have done. And he uses the Israelites to be his agents of justice to carry out the sentence. He goes on to say this, that the function of the ordinary state, when acting through its officers against criminals or through its military forces, against offending or wicked nations, when it destroys life, when it exacts reparations, that the proper performance of this function is not a violating of God's character. It's not a violating of who God is and a violating of the Bible. No, quite the contrary. These are fulfillments of God's provision of common grace. For in God's dealing with humanity and common grace, he has authorized the state as an avenger of wrath to him that doeth evil. See, it's actually quite the opposite. It's a demonstration of his love and his care. In verse 7, the evil wicked king, some of you may be sitting there going, well, this this just isn't fair, this isn't just. How, How still, still, how can God do this? How could he, how could he, you know, bring the annihilation of a group and steal their land? But here in verse 7, the evil, wicked king says, listen, 70 kings, 70 kings I've cut off their toes and thumbs and made them bleed out underneath me. It was a way of disgrace, of humiliating a king once you had conquered him. He would just sit there and he would bleed out underneath the table. 70 kings he had done this to. This is a wicked human. And he says, God is just. God is giving me what I had deserved. That even this wicked king who's not a follower of Yahweh is saying, this is just. Listen, it shows the character of God in the face of sin. That God is not a passive coward. God does not stand back unaffected and apathetic. No, he comes and he deals with it. And he loves the world he created. And he takes sin very seriously. And I think deep inside, whatever upheavals we may be having about a loving God being a just judge. And I want to be sensitive here because I get it. This is a really hard topic for some of you, for some of you and your family. It's the reason why some of your children have probably left the faith or left the church, or maybe even some of you are wrestling, and I get that. But I think deep inside we know that genuine love means that judgment must always be true. 
I think deep inside we all know that genuine love means that judgment must be true. Listen, an unloving God would remain apathetic about cruelty. An unloving God wouldn't give a flip about human trafficking. An unloving God wouldn't do a thing about racism. An unloving, sick God monster would let abuse just go unchecked and wink at it. But that is not the God of the Scriptures. That is not the God of the Bible. Listen, why do some people get so mad at the God of the Bible for holding people accountable, and yet they always hold people accountable? Why do some people hate God and yet hate that criminals get off scot-free? Why do some people say that God is mean, God is cruel, God is harsh, and yet they despise racists who get away with hurting people? Why do people curse the nature of God for judging people justly and yet get so full of rage from injustice in our world? Listen, the truth is, is that every single one of us craves justice. And we long for a true God that actually brings it. And I'm telling you this morning that the God of the Bible is the one you're looking for. He is the God who says, I will do something about it. I don't sit back and wink at racism. No, it furiates me and I will do something about it. He's not the God that looks at human trafficking, that looks at abuse, that looks at assault and just kind of turns his head. No, he's the God that says, I will bring injustice to justice. He's the one that you're looking for and you don't even know it. He's not the corrupt judge. He's not the crooked cop. He's not the tainted jury. He is the true judge and the true God that you're longing for. Hear me. You can't have it both ways. You can't demand justice in our world and then get mad at God who says, I am the one who does something about it. I am the one that actually brings true justice. It reminds me of a story. When my second boy was young, I don't remember how old he was. He was probably two or three or something like that. And uh, he he had this love obsession, right? He, he had this love for metal objects and electrical outlets. Now, I don't know if you've studied science very much. Those don't make for a real good marriage, all right? In fact, they make for a really bad divorce, okay? And uh, well, this, this, I mean, he, I don't even know how he figured it out, but he would just keep grabbing metal things and trying to, you know, baby Einstein over here, jamming them into the sockets, right? And we'd tell him no, put them away, try to reason with them, talk with them. You know, and finally it got to a point where, you know, I had to kind of work his, you know, backside a little bit, right? And get his, you know, he was mad, screaming, da 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 da. And I'm like, listen, you can't do this. <laughs> if you do this, it will kill you. Like, and I actually like you today. Like, don't do this, right? Like, this is bad. You can't stick metal things in electrical outlets, right? But he couldn't understand it. He just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Listen, my love for my boy. My love for my boy demanded that I bring judgment on my son. Listen, mom and dad, your kids are going to hate that you bring judgment on them. But you got to do it. Listen to me, middle schooler. Listen to me, high schooler, college students. If your mom and dad don't bring discipline on you, don't bring judgment on you, then you ain't got a mom and dad who cares. It is the greatest gift in the world that you have a parent that out of love will discipline you for godliness and discipline you for your good to protect you from yourself. It's just like your father in heaven. You see, the opposite of love is not anger. It's indifference. It's doing nothing. And that is not the God of the Bible. So the second takeaway is this. Folks, do we have a right view of God? Do we ache to be agents of justice in our community? Do we have a heart that mirrors what God is up to in the world? Because we care, because we love, do we get involved to help those who have no voice? 
Listen, are you doing anything in your life for those who have no voice? Some of you in this community have been given incredible leverage. You have influence. You have authority. You have power. You have a voice. What are you doing with it for those who have no voice? Because that is the heart of God. Who uses his voice to be a voice for those who have no voice. That is the heart of the Father. How are we leveraging our wealth, our influence, our networks for those who are hurting or being hurt? It's Micah 6.8. That what have I shown you, O man, and what is good? That what does the Lord require of you? To love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly before your God. It's the calling on all of us. And do we have a right view of God that's shaping our daily life? Last, that's not all. It's also about a rescue story. Look at, look at chapter 2 again. Let me read verses 1 and 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Why have you disobeyed me? Why have you done this? And so they were, the people of God were commissioned to go completely annihilate these people, but they didn't do it. They left a lot of the women. They left a lot of the children. They started intermarrying. They did not complete the mission of annihilation. And God looks at them and says, why? I told you to go rid the land of idols. I told you to go rid the land of evil. Why did you not do it? And yet God says, looks at them and says, listen, even though, you have not diso- even though you've disobeyed me, I made a covenant with you. <laughs> that I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That I will never abandon you. That though you did not fully obey me, I still will not abandon you. It reminds me of this TV show not too long ago called My Super Sweet 16, right? It's extremely masculine. And, uh, but I was like solely hooked on it, right? Okay, some of you have seen it, you understand why. And it was this TV series that really made you nauseous, right? And this reality series that covered the insane 16-year-old birthday parties of children from like insanely ridiculous rich people. Like, I, it's, I mean, it's as if God just said, what do you want? Here, you can have it. I mean, these people were far beyond rich than you could ever imagine. And it documented their birthday parties. Do you remember what it was like to watch it, those of you did? I mean, it was like you just kind of kept regurgitating. <laughs> I mean, it just, and then you want to like throw your remote at the TV, but you realize you're poor and you can't afford a new one, but they can. Well, there was this one episode, and this te- teenager, she has the wardrobe of a celebrity. I mean, literally, her closet was about as big as my neighborhood. I mean, it was ridiculous. All right, I don't know how she had all those things. And she's getting this birthday party. That literally costed hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, I know preachers exaggerate. I'm a campus minister, so I'm not exaggerating. It literally costed hundreds of thousands of dollars. And yet, throughout the show, she just keeps asking for more and more and more, right? Totally grateful. Just kidding. She's asking for horses. She's asking for new cars. She's asking for electronics. They get on a plane to Hawaii, and halfway through, she goes, I don't want Hawaii. I want Spain. So they turn the plane to Spain. They're on the way to Spain. <gasps> I forgot two friends. Go back and get them right now for my birthday. All right. They turn the plane back and go get them. I mean, it was just like, you got to be kidding me here. And the dad just keeps saying, sure, sweetie. Yeah, my little schnookum, wookum, nookum. Yes, whatever you want, baby. What you want, daddy wants. What daddy wants, what daddy gets. You, you got it, right? You, just, you love, I got you. Blah, blah, blah. And you're thinking to yourself, like, this is insane. You're like, you people aren't even fit to raise a grasshopper, let alone a human being. Like, what are you doing? Because over and over and over again, the father just kept giving this girl what she did not deserve. Kind of sounds like another father we know, doesn't it? 
You see, chapter 2 opens with God saying, I have rescued you and I will never turn my back on you. And though you have failed me again, I will not abandon you. Though I will not fully relieve you of your oppression because of your sin, I will not abandon you. And in almost every chapter, people forget God. They abandon him. They display unfiltered wickedness. They spit on his throne, just like the people of God and the Canaanites. And yet, he keeps coming back. He keeps rescuing. He keeps forgiving. He keeps freeing. He keeps loving. He keeps being merciful. He just keeps giving these people what they do not deserve. Weird, isn't it? That this God of justice is also this God of love and rescue to those who don't deserve it. Why? That's just because it's who he is. Listen, most people only love those who love them. i got to admit, I'm the chief. <laughs> Man, I'm really good. I'm really good at loving people that like me. I'm really good at caring for people that are good to my kids. I'm really good at loving and being kind and going out of my way for people that love my family or take care of our family or my friends. But I'm not real good at loving those who are my enemies. And yet God, thank the Lord, is not like me. God loves and seeks the good even of people who are his enemies. But because God is good and loving, he cannot tolerate evil. He despises injustice. And so imagine God's situation. I want you to imagine a judge who's also a father, and he's sitting at the trial of his guilty boy. And he's staring at his boy, and he says, you're guilty. You're caught. I know you are. We know you are. Everybody knows you are. You're guilty. Can't get out of it. We know this. And a judge knows he cannot let his son go. Because without justice, no society can survive. Let me say that again. Without justice, no society can ever survive. Now, How much less can a loving God ignore justice due to us because of our sin and our injustice who are loved and yet guilty of rebellion against his loving authority? And the answer is he can't. He is obligated to bring justice and judgment against his own people even though he loves them. We're in a tough situation. So what is God's solution? What's his answer? What's his solution to his need to bring judgment against his people who he deeply loves and is committed to rescuing? And the answer is Judah. It's the tribe of Judah. Do you remember back in the beginning? Do you remember Judah and the people cried out and said, what are we going to do? Who's going to deliver us? Who's going to rescue us? And God looks at him and says, send Judah. Judah is going to be the one who is going to right all the wrongs. Judah is going to be the one who's going to be the final answer to the cry for your help due to injustice in the land. Well, and don't you know, when you start to read the book of Matthew, the chapter 1 starts off with a genealogy story. And it's a story of a little boy that grew into a man who's just a kind of a little bit special in a kind of a little bit of a special way. And this boy has an incredible genealogy. He has an incredible history. His genealogy showing that he is somebody who came from the tribe of Judah. Listen, let me connect dots. The warrior, the true deliverer, the true judge, his name is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the warrior, the deliverer, the true judge. He is the one who's going to right all the wrongs. He is the final answer to our cry for help and mercy due to the mess we find ourselves in. He is the fulfillment of the true Judah. He is the Judah that is going to rid the world of wrong and sin and misery and justice. Jesus is the hope of the book of Judges, and he's our only hope too. That because he will be the one who will reconcile this tension, God himself, Jesus, taking on the flesh, walking this earth, this messy, wicked 
world and amidst it live a life of unfiltered perfection and righteousness. But instead of being praised, instead of being exalted, he will be lifted up on a cross and he will experience unfiltered wickedness as he gets mutilated by his own people. And then on that day, intrusion judgment will happen again. And the final judgment will fast forward and come onto Jesus. And he will experience the judgment of God the Father as he cries out, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And there's the answer. There is where the tension finally kisses. He must not be experiencing judgment for his sins because he has none. He must be experiencing judgment for our sins, our injustices. Our wickedness. And the father's need to enact justice was taken out on his boy. He took it out completely on his boy so that he doesn't have to take it out on you, his people. And so on the cross, the justice of God shows forth as sin is punished in full on Jesus. And folks, this is our hope. That we who are due this great judgment and justice, but he took it out on Jesus so that he doesn't have to take it out on you. And when we come by faith, believing that he was the son of God... That he dies and died and resurrected on the third day. You get the kiss and the smile of the Father. Because your injustice gets traded with his justice. Your unrighteousness gets traded with his righteousness. Your cussing gets traded with his perfection. Your adultery gets traded with his faithfulness. Your breaking the law gets traded with his perfect keeping of the law. Your daily failures to worship God perfectly as you walk gets traded with his perfect record of worshiping God 24-7. The great exchange takes place. And all of a sudden, everything the Father needed to bring on you, you realize he brought it on his boy so that you get the standing of his boy. (laughs) Beautiful, isn't it? Listen, if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know him, I do want to be very clear. This is but a small picture or portrait of what you have waiting for you. Make no mistake, we don't talk about hell much, but it is real. And it is a place of eternal torment. Unlike these people, you never get annihilated. You continue in torment forever, the Bible says. And this picture of God unleashing his wrath on the Canaanites is but a portrait, is but a picture of what God is going to have to unleash on you because nobody's paid your debt. Nobody's paid the price for your injustice. Nobody's paid the price for your law-breaking. Nobody's paid the price for your treason against God. And it is a scary and terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But apart from Christ, this is what awaits you. And it's real and it's true. And you have to come to terms with that. But on the other hand, it is a beautiful, silencing, calming, crazy thing to think that he is the kind and merciful father who took all of this wrath and vengeance out on his son so that he doesn't have to take it out on you, his former enemy. And he brings you into the family of his own son and his own daughter. Now, folks, that's good news. That is really, really good news. So I ask you, is God cruel or is God really caring? And I'm going to suggest to you that there's quite a bit of evidence that he really is caring. Let's pray. Uh, Father, forgive me for my lack of reverence. I just, I, man, I feel my own sin right now, my own depravity. God, I feel the weight of my own judgmental heart. I feel the weight of my own foolish sin. 
God, right now, I feel the weight of my own inconsistencies where I'm a hypocrite. I feel the weight of where I fail to keep the law every day. And, uh, <laughs> and I feel the weight of your glory right now. I feel the weight of your perfection. Uh, I feel the weight of my failures as a preacher, my failures as a father. I feel the weight of my failures as a friend. My, my, I feel the weight of my failure to be involved with justice in the city of Valdosta. And uh, God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus, I feel the greater weight, that Jesus, you have taken that weight that was supposed to sit on me and is now on you. And I feel the freedom, I feel the smile of the Father, the love of the Father through the work of Christ, credited to us by faith. And God, we thank you for this. We thank you that you are God who really does something about injustice because you love us and you love this world. And we thank you that you are a God who really does and is committed to rescuing us even when we don't want it. And so, Father, I pray, be with us. Be with us, Father, as we leave here today and we wrestle with the weight of your glory. As we wrestle with the weight of your justice and judgment and we wrestle with the weight of your rescue and your love. And, Father, I pray, let us wrestle with Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. Together and end our worship day singing Rock of Ages. It's a great application of what Chad has just shared with us. Stand together.